Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Welcome back, Carlos. Hey, it's always good to be here. And I'd like to let you know and let all our listeners know that the Christian Mysticism Podcast has reached over 10,000 downloads since we started back in January of this year. Wow. It's quite a feat considering we're a very niche podcast, very new, and it's only been growing episode after episode. And I want to thank all of our listeners out there for your support and for all the encouraging emails and messages you've been sending us. And we really appreciate it. We're enjoying this, and we're glad you're enjoying the show as well. So tell us, Carlos, what are we talking about on this episode? Well, I think we uh, have touched on this subject a few times, Protestant mysticism. Uh, I mean, this is the Christian mysticism podcast, but up until now, we've been dealing with mostly Catholic mystics and Orthodox mystics. But something happened in the 16th century that put a new wrinkle on Christian mysticism. If we're considering the broader subject of all Christians, different kinds of Christians. And what happened in the 16th century was radical and it was sudden. And it, it's a major change from the types of mysticism that we've been discussing up until now. So does Protestant mysticism even exist? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I think we covered this in the first or second podcast. Mysticism is on a spectrum, if you think of it, just like the light spectrum, right? All the different colors that go from one end to the other. There are many different kinds of mysticism. And broadly defined, mysticism is any kind of direct experience by a human being of spiritual dimension, the divine dimension. But that comes in all different sorts of wavelengths. If you want to use the spectrum uh, metaphor in a different way with the audio spectrum, it comes in different wavelengths. And there's no such thing as one kind of Protestant mysticism. Just like there, there, there are very different kinds of Catholic mysticism and Orthodox mysticism, every mystic, every person who claims to have these experiences of some higher reality, a divine reality, they do it as who they are. And people can be very different, even if they're in the same religious tradition. But with Protestantism, you have a within what we might call Protestant mysticism. There's a whole spectrum there too. So it's a lot to cover in one podcast. I think today we're just going to get started because there's uh, so much that can be said. And we might not do a, a two-part show, but we might come back to it later. Obviously, we've talked a lot about mysticism, and as you mentioned, most of the, or all of the mystics we've spoken about have been Catholic or, or Orthodox, and they're all pretty much well-known, St. Augustine, St. Francis of Assisi, Maria Teresa de Avila, but you don't really hear, at least I haven't really heard a lot about Protestant mystics out there, but I do recall, because I had my time during my life that I was a Protestant. And I do recall, although Protestants didn't really talk about having visions and 
things of that nature, there was always a lot of talk about near-death experiences. And I think there's been movies made about it and books written about it. it would you count that as part of the whole... Well, the, the whole near-death experience phenomenon crosses all kinds of lines. Uh, it, it's not just Christians who have these near-death experiences. It's people of all religions and even people who are who are atheists have had these near-death experiences which have certain similarities, right? I think uh, before we've touched on this a few times that many of the mystics we've been talking about, the, the mystical experience is like a foretaste of heaven, right? So it, it's like almost a foretaste of life after death. But these near-death experiences that are, you know, they're scientifically studied and there are various opinions on what's actually going on. That's what happens at the moment of death to someone who then claims that while they were clinically dead, they went to some other dimension. And, you know, some have, they all have different kinds of heavens. They all, but they all have some kind of experience of some other dimension in which they were still alive, even though there are medical records, you know, that have them being declared clinically dead. And they come back. But Protestants, you know, to get back to the, the spectrum, you know, there's so many different kinds of Protestant mysticism. But I think one that many people might be familiar with, not because they've, you know, experienced it, but because you read about it, Pentecostals. Pentecostals, they get in touch with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit manifests itself in these individuals in different ways, including the so-called gift of speaking in tongues, right? Where, where you're speaking, it, but it's not any language that you know or that anybody else knows. And, and we read about that in the early church. Apostle Paul writes about the gift of tongues. So you have that. Uh, you have, you know, evangelical revivals where the preacher calls on people to feel, feel the Spirit or to, you know, feel the presence of Jesus and calls on them, then those of you that, uh, you know, if you're, now that you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, come on down, come on down, and come down to the front. That was a very common thing for the evangelist Billy Graham. But we're not talking about, I mean, when we talk about these experiences of the divine, Pentecostals are at one end of the spectrum because they actually do have physical manifestations, and they're, they're, they're ecstatic manifestations. But if you read about the details of what Protestant Pentecostals are experiencing, and then you read about what Catholic Pentecostals, because there are Catholic Pentecostals experience, then you start to see the, the differences. The basic issue of difference between Catholics and Protestants is that Protestants, beginning in the 16th century, put forward a very different conception of human nature and what human nature was capable of experiencing. And that goes in many different directions, but it's the bottom line. Bottom line is, can human beings experience union with the divine as described by medieval Catholic mystics? And the major Protestant reformers all rejected that. They had a very different conception of human nature. So in the early years of the Protestant Reformation, uh, mysticism, as it was known in the Middle Ages, basically disappears. 
and you have great contrasts between these Catholic mystics of the 16th and 17th century and even anyone in the Protestant family of churches who might be claiming to experience the divine. It's going to be very different from the way that Catholics had expressed it throughout the Middle Ages. Did any of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, such as Luther, did they ever speak to mysticism or give their opinion of it? Oh, yeah, that, definitely, definitely. And, you know, keep in mind that, you know, this is a whole other subject, you know, why the Protestant Reformation took place and what the main differences were, you know, theologically and in terms of church organization and so on. That's a whole other subject. But, yes, the major Protestant reformers addressed the main issues of Catholic mysticism. And some of them had read mystical authors. They had even been influenced by them. But the influence, of course, took a different direction. For instance, Martin Luther, who was the, the first major Protestant reformer, he gradually broke away from the Catholic Church between 1517 and 1521. Luther was a monk, and he was trying desperately to experience these mystical states that he had been reading about, but never did experience them. Yeah, he had a very troubled spiritual life in the monastery. Luther had read some of Eckhart's disciples, uh, especially John Towler, and uh, another mystical text that was uh, anonymous, we don't know who wrote it, called the uh, German Theology, Theologia Germanica. And those texts, the Towler texts and the Theologia Germanica, were exactly what you would expect them to be. They're a lot like Meister Eckhart, and they speak of the presence of the divine inside the human self. Luther rejected that. He rejected it. And in rejecting this, why did he do it? Well, he never had those experiences. In fact, he had a very different experience, which was that as a monk, he tried very hard to deny himself pleasures of any kind. So he fasted a lot. He went without sleep a lot. He prayed a lot. But he couldn't get over the fact that he was very conscious of his own sinfulness. So the more he tried to do what monastics had been doing for over a thousand years, right? To go through the purgation, step number one, illumination, step number two, and then union. He was stuck in purgation, but in a very bad way, because he felt he was not making progress. And actually, there's a quote from Luther, I, I know almost verbatim, but the best I can do is paraphrase, is that, you know, he says, oh, I fasted so much. I went without sleep so much. If ever a monk got to heaven through his monkery, it should have been me. But instead, what he felt was a growing distance from God. The, the more that he practiced asceticism and self-denial and <clears throat> devoted himself to prayer, the farther and farther he kept feeling from God because of his own sinfulness. And imagine, this is what monks do. This is what he was trying to do. And it's not working. What kind of solution did he find? Well, it's a very personal solution that he then, his gift as a writer and preacher was so great that, you know, his own personal experience then became the model for all those who followed him.
So you can't separate Luther's mysticism from this personal experience that he had. He got to a point where he scrutinizes conscience so constantly and in such a detailed way that he began to confess his sins constantly. And of course, he's in a monastery. He's got plenty of brethren there who are priests who can hear his confession. And he tells us that at one point, his brethren, who were priests, if they saw him coming, would try to hide from him <laughs> because they didn't want to hear his confession. He was going over tiny little details of sins. And, and part of his problem was that you know, a, a sin that one must confess is not only something that one does, but thoughts that one has or one's intentions in doing something. Like, for instance, if you help a handicapped person across the street, but your primary motive for doing that is to have other people think well of you, that would be a sin. Not a minor sin, but a sin nonetheless. But Luther was certain, very certain, that he could never be sinless. He's very Augustinian. As a matter of fact, the, the monastic order to which he belonged was the Augustinian order. And he took this from Augustine. He took this from the Prince of Mystics. Augustine's concept of original sin and the thoroughness of the damage done to the human self by original sin, by the sin of Adam and Eve, which they passed on to all their descendants. His confessor, his main confessor, his spiritual director, Johann von Staupitz, began to advise Luther to think in Augustinian terms that were different. You know, he said, stop, stop looking at your individual sins. Look at the big picture. Just think of yourself as a whole, as a person, rather than just a collection of actions and thoughts. And uh, by the way, Luther, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, you're spending much too much too much time on on your own sinfulness. As your superior, I order you to do this: go get a doctorate <laughs> in Holy Scripture. Go get a PhD. And Luther protested, and and uh, Staupitz insisted, and because of his vow of obedience, Luther had to go get his. He had to go to graduate school, basically, in Holy Scripture. So Luther starts, you know, examining the Bible very, very thoroughly, very, very thoroughly. And he comes to write a commentary on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So he reads Romans very, very thoroughly. And then he also reads Galatians. And uh, anyone who reads these two Pauline letters, Galatians and Romans, but especially Romans, will see where Luther found his solution. Because, especially in Romans, Paul speaks of being saved by faith and also puts a great contrast between the law of Moses, which in, in Romans he says, look, that law is there to guide us, but no one can ever fully keep it. No one can observe the law. No one can become perfect. Augustine had that too. Augustine was, was very much against any kind of perfectionism. To get to the, the main point, what Luther's insight was, in reading Paul, he found a solution, but it was a very radical solution. He became convinced that salvation does not consist of performing good acts and avoiding sin, which for centuries had been actually, you know, 
the main focus of how the church taught people about salvation. It's just the fact, Luther said, that Christ died on the cross for everyone, and it's through him that you get forgiveness of sins. His understanding of human nature came to be that human beings are simultaneously, at the same time, constant sinners and saved. So you don't go to heaven because you did so many good things and avoided sin. No, that's not it. No, you go to heaven if you have the gift of faith. So his concept of being simultaneously a sinner and justified and his concept of perfection being impossible, what's the payoff? The payoff is that the three-step mysticism of the Middle Ages and the early Christian church. Step one, purgation. Two, illumination. Three, union. No, that doesn't happen. That's not possible. You'll have moments of closeness to the divine. You don't ever get beyond purgation. Now, let me stop for a second, because there's a something of a misunderstanding of what Luther meant by, you know, always being a sinner. Did that mean that you could do whatever you wanted to? No, he said, no, you can't do that. But the fact is that your motives will always be somewhat twisted because of your original sin makes you selfish. So, see, it's starting to get a bit complicated on how you explain this to anyone. Yes, I can see how it can get very complicated because now you get deep into theology and, and the whole idea of antinomianism which I don't believe Luther was an antinomian. Oh, no, no, he wasn't. He it definitely wasn't. Yeah. And antinomian meaning someone who believes you're saved. It doesn't matter how you live. You can sin all you want. Right. God will still forgive you. And, That's right. And you don't have to live by any moral code or behave yourself or anything of that nature. But I remember hearing, and I know you are an expert on Luther, having written uh, your book on the Reformation, I wanted to ask you, because I remember hearing a Protestant theologian talking about Luther and talking about the whole part of him being very attached to the Pauline uh, letters, and he mentioned that Luther despised the book of James. Oh, yeah. Because, of, yes. because, because James is almost the, the opposite of what Paul is saying in, in Romans and Galatians. Right. And he even went so Luther went so far as to say that the book of James should have never been canonized. What he said, well, he didn't go completely over the line because then he would have taken it out of the Bible. And Lutheran Bibles, of course, kept the book of James. But what he did say was that the book of James was an epistle of straw as compared to Paul. He also said, and he said this in his preface to the German translation of the New Testament. What he said was this, Paul's letter to the Romans is the one text out of the entire Bible through which the entire Bible needs to be interpreted, which is an amazing claim, right? And, and very different from anything anyone had said before, that in order to understand the entire Bible, in order to understand what salvation is, you have to read the entire Bible through Paul's letter to the Romans. So he, he did have a ranking of the, the value of certain books in the Bible. And James was 
pretty much at the bottom. You know, in Epistle of James, it says very boldly, point blank, faith without works is dead. And Luther was saying, you're not saved through your works. You're saved through faith alone. But, you know, this gets us into a whole area of theology that is not only immensely complicated, but has been the source of much division among Christians. How to interpret Jesus's death and resurrection vis-a-vis one's behavior. I completely get that. And and obviously, we're not going to get into a deep theological discussion on this, but I think it's important to bring this up because it does give us a perspective in terms of how Protestants view mysticism based on what you mentioned earlier, being that Protestants do not believe purgation can exist while we're still alive, and that purgation being necessary in order to have a mystical experience. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, asceticism, self-denial is pointless. You're not going to score points with God because, you know, you, you only eat one meal a day or only sleep three hours a night or whip yourself every night. No, that's totally unnecessary, which means monasticism itself is totally unnecessary. So monasticism is abolished. And if you want to think of the sort of social dimension of Christian mysticism, up until Luther for 1,500 years. A little less than that because monasticism doesn't come to exist till about the second, third century. But anyway, for certainly over a thousand years. The seedbed of mysticism was the institution of monasticism. And Luther does away with it. And so do all the other major Protestant reformers. They do away with it. And they also do away with celibacy as a virtue. So what do these other Protestant reformers, such as Zwingli, have to say regarding mysticism? Well, basically the same thing as Luther, but they stressed different aspects of, you know, their understanding of human nature and divine nature. Luther was not very interested in metaphysics. It was a branch of philosophy and theology that examines what the ultimate reality is. He wasn't that much interested in that. So he had no metaphysical principles uh, behind his objection to monasticism, asceticism, and claims of union with God. He simply did not find any of that in the Bible. And on top of that, what he found in, in the Apostle Paul was a warning that you should not focus on complying with God's law as much as have faith that God saves you through Christ. That was very simple in one dimension, simple, because, you know, it's, it's a very, very straightforward message. But it's very complicated in terms of its implications. Zwingli was more interested in metaphysics because Zwingli was more of a humanist scholar than Luther. What do I mean by that? Zwingli was very influenced by the recovery of Platonic philosophy in the late 15th, early 16th century. And he was very much a Platonist. And, you know, we've talked about Plato before and his influence on Christian mysticism. Well, for Plato, matter, physical embodiment, is a problem. 
because you cannot get to the higher truths through your body. Zwingli ends up proposing the following, that material existence, embodiment, is actually an obstacle to spiritual experience. And a Latin phrase from Zwingli says it all, finitum non est capax infiniti. The finite cannot contain the infinite. And he also said that, you know, what, what, whenever you stress the material or physical, you actually detract from the spiritual. So the very idea of, you know, having a divine spark inside you is rejected by Zwingli, but in a different way from Luther. And Zwingli, for instance, went one step further than Luther in his adherence to biblical principles. And this was a major point of disagreement between them. Major. And that's why you end up with one Protestant tradition emanating from Zwingli and a different one from Luther, because they had major differences on certain issues. But they did agree. All these mystical claims from the previous centuries were bogus, or perhaps even demonically induced and hallucinations. So they both reject the idea, concept, or teaching that if you work hard enough at it, praying and denying yourself things, you can reach that divine presence that is already a part of you, in you. And Zwingli does away with monasticism as well. But here's something that might help to let our listeners uh, see the difference between Zwingli and Luther. Luther contrasted law and gospel. By law, he meant the law of Moses in the Old Testament. The gospel, of course, being the center of the New Testament. And he was very much opposed to anyone who put an emphasis on observing the law. Zwingli did pretty much the same thing, but here's an important difference between them. The interpretation of the Ten Commandments. Zwingli insisted that the commandment, thou shalt have no graven images, was to be obeyed by Christians. Something that centuries before had already been decided uh, after some controversy by the Second Council of Nicaea, 8th century, was that that commandment does not apply to Christians. That commandment is like the dietary law that the Jews had to observe, or like circumcision. Uh, Christ has done away with that. Zwingli, and Luther agreed with that. Zwingli said, no, 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 we have to destroy all the religious images. And then another point of difference between them related to the same philosophical, metaphysical, theological issue of the relationship between matter and spirit. What happens at the celebration of the Eucharist, communion? What does it mean? What did Christ mean when he blessed the bread, broke it, and said, take this and eat, this is my body? Luther thought, is means is. <laughs> yeah, Christ is really present there. So you see, already you see that Luther has more uh, kind of a very mystical understanding of what goes on at communion. He said, it can't be explained how it happens, and one doesn't need to know how it happens. But yeah, Christ is really present. I know it looks like bread, but Christ said he's that's his body, so it is his body. Zwingli, in contrast, interpreted the verb is, est, 
Because the Latin phrase that priests would say as they were consecrating the communion wafer, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. Zwingli interpreted est as signifies. It's just a symbol for. It's not my real body. And Zwingli had all kinds of arguments with Luther about this. And you know, at one point, Zwingli said, that because they actually met and discussed this in 1529. And Zwingli goes back to the Bible and quotes the Bible against Luther and says, yeah, well, Jesus says also, I am the vine. Does that mean he was a vine? <laughs> I am the good shepherd. Does that mean he's a shepherd? No. He used figurative language constantly. And Luther keeps saying, no, 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 no. So in Zwingli's communion service, one can have a sort of very spiritual, non-material moment of communion with Christ. But he's not in the bread. The bread is bread. It's just bread. It's not the body of Christ. Since both Luther and Zwingli rejected monasticism, though, it puts them on the same plane. Despite this disagreement they have about the relationship between the material and the spiritual, they both reject the notion that one can keep reaching higher and higher and higher levels of intimacy with the divine, and that this, these experiences of ecstasies and raptures in which you're united with the divine have physical manifestations. No, they both agreed, no, that cannot happen. And if anybody makes those claims, it's probably because they're being deluded by the devil. So that's where you have the great divide, the two traditions. Catholic, let's put a slash in there, Catholic Orthodox, both Eastern and Western Christianity, before 1517. All of a sudden, in, in the early 16th century, you have a, a new kind of mystical tradition emerging, where, yeah, you still talk about having communion, and you still have the sacrament, the ritual, interpreted differently, very differently, by Luther and Zwingli, but also interpreted as nothing that puts you in direct contact with that inner God in you. So, parting of the ways. But that's not all there was to the Protestant Reformation. That's why I said we're not going to be able to cover everything in one podcast. Because other Protestants came along who actually took those mystical claims from the Middle Ages very seriously and went in a different direction. And some of them became very serious troublemakers <laughs> for both Luther and Zwingli. More divisions. You know, let's use the image of a tree with all its branches. Let's talk about a tree that has one trunk, but the, the trunk then branches out into innumerable branches. This is what happened with Protestantism after Luther and Zwingli came along in the early 16th century. It went in many different directions. Branches and sub-branches, uh, and sometimes a great deal of conflict between uh, reformers. And I'll mention one, just to, as a, a high point of contrast with Luther and Zwingli. And this man I'm going to mention hated Luther, and Luther hated him. His name was Thomas Münzer, and he became an early follower of Luther, and took this... Uh, Luther's principle of, you know, salvation by faith alone very seriously, but he interpreted it very differently. 
you know, another central point of Luther's teaching was that the Bible is the sole source of truth, Scripture alone. Well, Munzer took that one even more seriously. But what he came up with was by our, the way that we've been talking about mysticism, very mystical. And he felt that he had pushed through and had direct experience of the divine in that traditional way, that he had visions, that he received revelations from God, and that Luther was not going far enough. And Munzer eventually becomes a, a very radical mystic in a political sense. Uh, at one point, he says, against Luther, all true pastors must have visions. And Luther's not having any visions. As a matter of fact, Luther is denying that this, these things are possible. Well, Munzer uh, claimed that he had direct revelations from God that instructed him because the end was near. Again, now, a whole other twist. Munzer becomes very apocalyptic, right? The end is near. And Munzer is God's prophet. Tell the world the end is near. But part of the message, as uh, Munzer preaches it, is that Jesus will not return until, and I'm quoting, the godly wage war against the ungodly and defeat them. And he meant that literally. So he gets involved with the peasants' rebellion in 1524, 1525. And he actually dies on the battlefield. And the story goes like this. The peasants are assembled to fight against an army that has much better weapons and outnumbers them. And it had been raining, but there was a break in the rain and the clouds part, and then everybody sees a rainbow. And Munzer says, this is the sign from God that now this is the beginning of the end, and let's go fight against these knights and their princes and all these ungodly people. And of course, they lose the battle, and Munzer dies, and he's killed. End of story for Munzer. For just a while, there will be other radicals who, who will also follow in his path. But already, we've got three very different people. Luther, Zwingli, Munzer. And Munzer represents what scholars uh, ended up calling the radical reformation. And there will be many like Munzer who claim to have direct relationships with God, visions, and also some who will be very apocalyptic. I guess then it's safe to say there are Protestants who have claimed to be mystics or have, oh, yes. or have claimed to have had mystical experiences. Yes, yes. And in these early years of Protestantism, they were present, but they were much smaller in numbers, right? And they were usually outcasts. And they were usually persecuted too. And, to, you know, as long as we brought up Munzer, you know, an extreme example. And this is sometimes, I think, and I'm saying this uh, facetiously, it's, it's like a cruel joke from God. You have Thomas Münzer, and then you also have the German city of Münster, which is in the 1530s, taken over by radicals who are pretty much like Münzer. And they take over the city and they turn it into the New Jerusalem. Their leaders not only claim to be directly inspired by God, but one of their leaders claims to be the reincarnation of King David. And uh, they set up the New Jerusalem the following way. The community is to be led by elders, 
elders have direct contact with God and know what everybody needs to do. Oh, what does that mean? They abolish money. They abolish pirate poverty. Oh, that's beginning to sound familiar. <laughs> no private property, no money. And, uh, oh, by the way, you know, if you read the Bible correctly, you see that in the Old Testament, the patriarchs had several wives. Well, here in the New Jerusalem, it's been revealed to us that uh, we have to reinstate polygamy. So the elders uh, have multiple wives, and the law is passed that any woman who refuses an offer of marriage from one of the elders merits the death penalty. So to you and I who are familiar with, you know, communist utopias, this is what happens in Münster. The elders take possession of the best houses in town. They take possession of any woman that they fancy. And in the meantime, the city is set under siege for the very first time in the history of the, this religious division we call the Reformation. A Lutheran army and a Catholic army join forces, and they eventually do defeat these radicals at Münster. I can't believe I've never heard this story before. This is amazing. Well, it is quite a story, and it actually becomes embedded in all histories of the Reformation. And it doesn't matter if those histories were written by Catholics or Protestants. The city of Münster was prime example of what can happen when spirituality is totally out of control. This is a religion gone crazy. And actually, at one point, one of the leaders, you know, I'm, I'm skipping over their names because I don't want our listeners to, you know, focus on the names of these, what are, in fact, minor figures. But one of their early leaders, um, he was convinced, he got direct communication from God that he was immune to bullets and arrows. And at one of the battles, he just charged forward, thinking he was immune, couldn't be killed. And of course, he immediately caught something. I can't remember if it was a bullet, cannonball, or an arrow, but definitely died on the spot. So these people were crazy. And once the city is taken back by this joint Lutheran-Catholic effort, they round up as many of their leaders as possible, and they execute them in the most horrible way possible by skinning them alive. And then they take their three main leaders and hoist their bodies up the tallest church steeple in Münster in cages, in iron cages. And they leave their corpses there until they just crumble away into dust. And those three cages are still there. They're still there at St. Lambert Church in Münster as a, a warning to the world. Look, there is such a thing as bad mysticism. <laughs> and this is what can happen when uh, you let these people take over. The funny thing, it's not funny and you know, it's not a humorous thing, but it's, it's an odd twist. The city of Münster was heavily bombed during World War II by the Allies, and the cages were destroyed. But as soon as possible after the war, they rebuilt the church and put up the three cages mysticism gone totally wrong. It's almost like an entire city became a cult. Oh, yeah. That's what it is. It's, you know, and you know, most of our listeners are familiar with modern-day cults and some of the horrible things that, that have happened to the followers of these cult leaders. Uh, the same thing happened in Münster. This story puts Jonestown 
to shame. I mean, Jonestown was a horrible tragedy, yes. but you think of an entire city, how many must have been thousands or tens of thousands of people living there, yeah. and probably the majority of them not wanting to be there. Parents well, uh, with their daughters being taken by the elders. and Yeah, yeah. Uh, and not only that, a good number of men fled. And this might sound familiar to you, too, with you know the, the whole... It's, it's very similar to the history of what happened in Cuba. These crazy people, as they're viewed, right, they take over. They abolish money. They abolish pirate property. What do the residents of Minster do? Many of the men flee so that they can join those armies to reclaim their city. Which means that for most of the time that these radicals were in control, women outnumbered men. Which is why they could say, okay, fine, I'll have 12 wives. So they reclaim it. And the city, it was actually ruled by a bishop, Catholic bishop. And he was one of these German prince bishops. They were both simultaneously at the same time, a bishop and a prince. and. Catholicism is, is reinstated in Münster. But there's no getting around the fact that Thomas Münster becomes a revolutionary. And these Münsterites, as they're known, they become revolutionaries. In both cases, with kind of an apocalyptic dimension to their revolution. Oh, look, well, if we are the New Jerusalem that is spoken about, that's described in great detail in the book of Revelation. That's us. This is we. But then they take these extra twists, like, you know, claiming to be the reincarnation of someone else from the Old Testament. And this is why Luther hated Münzer, Thomas Münzer. He had nothing good to say about him, but ne ne neither did Münzer have anything good to say about Luther. He had, uh, actually, in, in most of his writings, he doesn't even call Luther by name. He just mentions him with, with insults. Like malicious black raven, <laughs> godless flesh living in Wittenberg. Well, I'll uh, stop here because many of the others are very, uh, let's say, improper. <laughs> we don't want to lose our family. No, no. Rating That's on, right. the, on the podcast. <laughs> That's right. If I mentioned some of these things that Munzer had to say about Luther, this, this, you know, this would get an, an R rating. So Luther had other enemies who went further than him and we didn't like. And one, one of them was actually a fellow professor with him at the University of Wittenberg. His name was Andrew Karlstadt. Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt, he was a noble, and also interpreted the Bible differently from Luther and called for the destruction of images. But at one point, Luther, Luther could be very funny. He, he had a very sarcastic sense of humor. And he had this to say about Karlstadt. He says, our, our former friend, Karlstadt, thinks he swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. <laughs> the image of the Holy Spirit is a dove. But again, as Luther's kind of dig against Karlstadt, is, oh yeah, you, you're a mystic, huh? You've got the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, you know, of course you're totally wrong. Well, you almost see that without the structure of a church, which Protestantism kind of eliminated the whole structure of, of the Catholic and slash Orthodox church, things can go off the rails pretty quickly. Oh, absolutely. Because um, especially there's no master plan, right? Luther, especially, most of what he ends up saying and doing is 
a response to the challenges that he's receiving. And when you do away with entire institutions, such as monasticism or bishops, well, what, what do you replace them with? And, you know, in the case of monks and nuns, what do you do with them? All right, so you confiscate all the monastic properties and you drive away these men and women. What do you do with them? <laughs> Where do they go? And I just want to make clear, I, I bring this up because I know our listeners, we we have Catholic listeners, Orthodox listeners, Protestant listeners. I bring this up not as, as a criticism of Protestantism, but more in how it fits within mysticism itself, where the mysticism that we've been talking about all these months and the other episodes sort of fell within the framework established by a church hierarchy. And that same mysticism taken outside of that framework can go, as I said earlier, off the rails and without a church body, without a master plan, as you called it, to keep things in check, it can go in any possible direction. And, and more than that, Alberto, one more thing, I think, is very important to emphasize, which has come up before, is that myth mystics can be seen as a great threat to authority, which is why so many mystics uh, end up being investigated very carefully to make sure that, they, as my, um, my mentor, the scholar who directed my doctoral dissertation, Stephen Osman, wrote a book entitled Mysticism and Dissent, in which he, um, if anyone's interested, it's a great book. And it actually focuses on people like Thomas Munzer and others like him, whose mysticism turned them into revolutionaries or activists of one kind or another. But Steve Osment uh, used to say in his lectures about mysticism, he used to say, well, yeah, mysticism is inherently dangerous, always, because and then I'll quote, how are you going to keep the people in the church after they have seen God? <laughs> Who's going to put up with the institution if you can have direct access to God? So, yeah, what you say is, is absolutely correct. You take away the structures that keep mystics under control, and you end up with Münzer and Münster. <laughs> you can't, because mysticism is essentially a claim of authority. Oh, yeah, I, I just had an ex direct experience of God. So how does that compare to the bishop who actually might not be the model of virtue you would want him to be? And also when you look at the whole phenomena of cults, it's always an individual that claims to have had a vision or a revelation that kind of contradicts everything that they were originally preaching or, or talking about oh, or, yeah. or were a part of, and they go off in a whole different direction, the Jonestown being the perfect example, and, and other religions as well. And I'm not going to start mentioning them. But as we get to the end of this episode, I wanted to ask you, we've discussed the different mystical stories that have happened within Protestantism in its early years or in the first century of it. What about modern? Well, others, uh, there's so much to cover. But, you know, eventually, this very, very strong opposition, Luther and Zwingli, and also Calvin would have against traditional mysticism, would begin to erode. And through different individuals, through different religious affiliations that people formed 
around spiritual leaders, Protestant mysticism gradually, somewhat slowly, came back to resembling medieval mysticism, but never exactly the same way. So a couple of examples. The Quakers, the Shakers, these two Protestant denominations. Now the Shakers are now almost extinct because they practiced celibacy, both the men and the women. But the Quakers are still around. You know, and the Quakers are just the opposite, if you want to view them that way, uh, just the opposite of the Munsterites and Thomas Munster, because the Quakers were pacifists, still are pacifists. But why were they called Quakers and Shakers? It's because they had these intense religious experiences that made them quake and shake. So we're back to the physical phenomena of mysticism and, and you know, very intense claims of in, intense, very intense spiritual experiences. Uh, another group, uh, the Moravians, many of them migrated to North America, especially North Carolina. And the Moravians, boy, they sound a lot like Catholic medieval mystics. And as a matter of fact, the, a student of mine once did a paper on these Moravian women in North Carolina, and I read quotes from their texts and so on. And, and these women are, are speaking of having these experiences with Christ where they actually kiss the wound on his side and have a very intense experience of kissing Christ's wound and sucking his blood. Oh, well, wait a minute. How does that, how do you get to that from Luther? <laughs> well, that's, that's what religion is. Religion is always evolving. And especially to come back to a point that, that you just mentioned a few minutes ago, if there's no central office, so to speak, putting boundaries on what is feasible, what is correct, uh, how do you control? How do you control spiritual experiences? And you can't, which is why within the Catholic Church, which is the flip side of the coin to what we've been talking about, is that Throughout the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, and into the 20th century, there have been Catholics who claimed to have mystical experiences and started to go off in uh, radical directions, but were expelled from the church. Because as my mentor, Steve Osmond, used to say, mysticism is inherently threatening to authority, authority structures, as well as persons who embody the authority of those structures. Well, you can definitely see where the threat can come and, and spirituality out of control can wreak havoc, as we've seen throughout history. I wouldn't say so much that it's controlling that spirituality, at least to me in, in the way I look at it. I would see it more in, a, in light of being able to discern what's going on, having a body that discerns these visions and these revelations that I think it's important because when everybody becomes their own interpreter of their own visions, it really opens the door to, to chaos. Well, another way of viewing it is an individual claim versus communal harmony. It could be very divisive. Somebody comes up with a you know, new message. Oh, God revealed to me yesterday that we should reinstate polygamy. The, the early history of, of the Latter-day Saints in the United States is proof of how divisive messages like this can be to the community at large so that, you know, the Latter-day Saints end up trying to find a place as far as away as possible from the rest of society. 
where they can establish their religion in peace and practice their religion the way they want to without causing violent eruptions because they end up being persecuted. So many of these mystics in the Protestant tradition do end up being persecuted and sometimes uh, martyred. I know there are a lot of stories that we haven't been able to cover on this episode, and we definitely should come back to it in a future episode. But for the next one, what do you have for us? Well, I think if we if we return to traditional Catholic or um, Orthodox mysticism, it might be instructive to look at someone who challenged authority or was viewed as a challenge to authority but was later regarded as the genuine thing. And one such person is John of the Cross, one of the greatest mystics in the Catholic tradition, who uh, had a very difficult time, but is now regarded as not only the genuine thing, but as genuine as a mystic can get. Well, that sounds like another great episode coming and I want to thank you for giving us some insight into the Protestant perspective of mysticism on this episode. I think it's important that we, we look at it from all sides. And on the next episode, we'll return to John of the Cross or De La Cruz, my namesake. Huh. Yes. So thank you again, Carlos. My pleasure. And until the next one, thank you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <music>